Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, the new, the improved Bibliophiles. Here we are coming back to you with episode two of our tromp through the great questions. I am your host, Ian Andrews, joined today by all the members of my family, Adam. Hey. Missy. Hi. Emily. Hello. And Megan. Hey. How are you guys doing today? Great. Excellent. So great. You listeners, I get to know what's coming. And so there may be giggles, there may be snorts, because the stuff that's coming is very, very good. And there's going to be some hilarious comparisons made. I just cannot wait to get into it. I want to kick <laughs> it off with um, just a brief description of the question on the table from each of you gathered dignitaries. We're talking today about the question, what is God like? Having addressed the question of whether there is one, we're now going to dive into a description of his, maybe even her, character. So let's define it a little bit. Um, what do we mean when we ask the question, what is God like? What what does that belie under the surface of human nature? And uh, yeah, take it away. Well, I think probably the, the question, I mean, we in the last episode, we talked about the question of God's existence. And what follows naturally is the question of whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. I mean, I think that's the main dichotomy on the on the... Of, and the question of what God is like. Is he for me or against me? What's his good nature? Or evil? Yeah, yeah, good or evil. Well, yeah, and I zeroed in on that second half. Uh, I don't want to give him, uh, show my hand too soon, but I zeroed in on the second half of that, that qualification. What is God's relationship to me? In describing what he's like, I am for, foremost in my mind in a lot of ways. I, I wonder how he interacts with me and who am I because of him. And, and I, um, in considering this question, went down that rabbit trail. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. How does humanity interact with the idea of the divine? I think that's a really good distinction to make. It was occurring to me immediately as you guys were talking that um, that, that can be asked in a human-centric way or in a divine-centric way. Are we describing God and his immutable characteristics, or are we looking around the world with, with reference only to ourselves and our fortunes and looking at God as a, as a feature of that? Go ahead, Dad. Do you think that because we are talking about books specifically— art a little bit more broadly and culture more, most broadly of all that we sort of assume a man centric perspective on that question. I mean, I was thinking about that today thinking that, that all literature, unless it's, well, let me put it this way. All literature takes up the question from a man's perspective. And if it tries to take it up from God's perspective, it becomes theology maybe, right? It becomes something else besides a story. Do you mean, by taking the question up from God's perspective, God telling us who he is himself? How does art do that? No, I meant the other way around. What I meant is that it seems to me that what art does is take the man's perspective and say, here's what God is like to the degree that a piece of art 
makes a statement about what God is like. It makes a statement from a man's perspective. So like right. Megan, what you just said, here's how, here's how God relates to me. And that's how I know what he's like. I'm a man talking like a man about human things. That's something of the essence of art and, and literature specifically, don't you think? Well, I wonder if we're limited to only thinking about the question in that way, just because God did only tell us about himself through the medium of story. He makes pronouncements about himself, but they're always relationally contextualized Mm -hmm. in in story. That's even true in terms of his actual um, revelation of himself in history, because history itself comes across as a great story. Mm Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, we can't look at it any other way, trying to piece it back together. To conclude my thought, if I and I am making an assumption here about the God of the Bible, which isn't necessarily the assumption that we want to make, but that this might be applicable to any description of what God is. The way that we think about him is primarily relational. And so maybe that's the first answer to the question, what is God like? He is relational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I and I want to come around and, and well, I want to make my point again. That's what I'm going to do the whole hour. <laughs> of course you do. I want to say that it's of the nature of literature to answer that question in the framework of how he relates to me, whether or not he's the God of the Bible and has revealed himself in story or whether or not I'm an atheist and I get my conclusion about God's nature from the void. It's the void as presented to my eyes and my senses and my story. My work of literature is an essentially human thing from an essentially human perspective. So is it fair to say then that in your conception, dad, we all take up this question as protagonists of our own story. And the question is, is God going to be some sort of sage aiding us or be some sort of cosmic enemy? That's not a bad way to put it. In fact, that's more elegantly than I put it. Yeah, I like that. So you would say not, you would alter the question to be not what is God like, but who do we understand God to be? How does God present himself? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I really like that. And it seems really obviously universal. If, if, especially if what mom said about history is true, um, we're all making judgments about this question all the time, whether we're consciously doing it or not in the way that we tell our own story, narrate stories about our friends and family and tell the stories of history as well. Yeah. If we assume God is a jerk, it's only because we feel that he has not dealt with us well. Um, I want to jump into some examples because we have three people holding forth today. I want to start with dad. And uh, I believe your your contemporary example speaks directly to the question of man as the protagonist and God as either antagonist or not, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. So I think the um, the best recent uh, cultural example of the question, taking up the question of God's nature, is uh, Peter Weir's 1998 movie, The Truman Show, mm. starring Ed Harris and Jim Carrey. Uh, Jim Carrey in the Classic. title role as Truman Burbank, the mild-mannered insurance salesman who lives in an idyllic seaside town uh, in the Northeast, I believe it is. Oh, no, it's in Florida, a seaside town in Florida, uh, where he um, lives a an idyllic life where uh, the rhythms of his days are predictable and sunny, and he has a very <laughs> sort of Jim Carrey comedy personality and has a pretty little wife and pretty little friends. And he has this great little line that he gives to all of his people. Uh, good morning, he says. And then he goes, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I don't know if you remember <laughs> seeing that, but oh, we yeah. laugh. I laugh at Jim Carrey because we've seen him in movies before, and he's sort of reprising his comedy role. And um, he starts to, um, to be, well, what's the word I'm looking for, unsettled by some incongruities that he notices in the world around him. 
And he starts to notice that the people that he interacts with are pretentious and false. And he starts to notice strange patterns uh, that are uh, in the in the experience of the world around him. People of a guy in a red on a red bicycle passes at irregular intervals behind the rearview mirror of his car, and he wonders why the same guy is driving around and around the block. And finally, he stumbles. I think the the way that it first starts is something falls out of the sky onto the street next to his house, and we, as viewers of the movie, can tell that it is a. Um, it's a camera, it's a, it's a, a set light, a prop light for, uh, for lighting a movie scene. And it falls out of the sky next to Truman's car and he doesn't know what it is. And, um, he receives as he's driving away, wondering, he looks up in the sky and doesn't see anything as he's driving away, wondering a radio show comes on or the news comes on the radio in his car that, uh, informs him that a, a passing plane has had engine trouble and has lost parts out of its engine. And so he assumes that that's the uh, that that's the explanation for this piece of metal falling out of the sky. It, it happens right then. Yeah, it happens immediately after the thing falls out of the sky. But so he's he's worried about that, and he starts to wonder, and he starts to 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 notice the details of the world around him with a little bit of a suspicious attitude. And um, other things happen that make you, the reader, start to really get involved in this mystery. Um, and then it comes to a head when he stumbles into, uh, goes through a door that he shouldn't have gone through, and he stumbles into an actor's break room where he didn't expect to see it. And there are there are people that were that were before, just minutes before, out on the street as just people walking down the street. Suddenly they're in this break room. They've got uh, microphones and headsets, and they're eating sandwiches and basically having lunch, having a lunch break. And he gets, he starts to, um, to ask, what are you guys doing here? And people grab him and push him out of the room and, and arrest him for trespassing. And uh, they, they try to cover it up. What eventually happens is that he starts to realize that he is being lied to and that everything he sees around him is actually a plant and it's actually a, a set. And he feels like he's on the set of a movie. He starts to realize that he, that he is on the set of a movie. We know as viewers that this famous TV director named Kristoff has been filming every moment of Truman's life since the day of his birth for a 24-7 reality TV show. And the TV show is the most popular TV show in the history of television. And they've made so much money that they have built a world inside a dome and it is it is um, fitted with all the greatest technology to actually simulate a seaside town in Florida, complete with sea and sky and sun and rain and wind and weather and temperature and uh, a little town full of actors that are playing Truman's uh, fellow residents. The long and the short of it is Truman figures it out and tries to escape. And the director of the show, Christoph, played chillingly and spectacularly by Ed Harris is up in this booth in the sky, which is the control booth of the world and the control booth of the television show surrounded by producers and, and uh, whoever attendant uh, angels and principalities and powers, mm -hmm. right? And angels like and principalities and powers, right? <laughs> what he's doing is on the one hand, then there's a camera, obviously there's a camera under every leaf of this whole town, mm -hmm. right? They're following mm -hmm. Truman's every move. He's manipulating the circumstances of Truman's life. So as to keep him under control and broadcast his experience to the viewing public of the world. On the outside of the booth, this is the most popular TV show in the history of television, and the whole world watches it all the time. 
24-7. So without knowing it, Truman is the most famous, you know, TV TV star personality ever that ever lived. Right. Fabulous setup, very chilling. But the, the climax of the show happens when Truman tries to escape and he finally figures out that somebody's watching him, that somebody's putting him on and that he needs to get out of there. And so he, um, he gets on a boat, even though he's been programmed by his experience at Christoph's direction to be deathly afraid of water because they don't want him trying to escape. He gets on a boat and tries to sail away. And so Christoph says, uh, well, oh, I got to tell you this one part first. Um, when they're searching for him, he disappears. He manages to disappear. He, he realizes that he's being watched. And so he sets up this thing and puts a dummy in his bed underneath a, uh, a blanket and sneaks out through a hole in the floor. When Christoph realizes that he's escaped, he says, send in a search party. And so everybody who lives in the town, all the actors that are supposed to be Truman's friends and associates become a search party. Happens in the middle of the night that he sneaks away. And so when they realize they can't find him, Kristoff in this wonderful dramatic scene um, speaks into the ear of all of his henchmen, all of his actors who be, have become the search party. He says, cue the sun. And so in the middle of the night, we have sunrise and it's all of a sudden it's broad daylight so they can see better to find him. And so you, you know, then it's no, so there's, there's no a secret. let there be light moment. There's literally I mean, a let there be light moment. Ooh. Okay, big confrontation on the open ocean where Truman is trying to get away and Kristoff is trying to blow him back to land with this giant storm. And Truman is resolute. He keeps on sailing toward the horizon and Kristoff keeps whipping up the storm into a higher and higher frenzy and driving him back. And finally, Truman lashes himself to the mast of his ship and he screams to the heavens, you'll have to kill me. And... He realizes that he's talking to someone. It's a little Melville-esque, right? It's very Melville-esque. He's talking to someone. And uh, so so Christoph responds. He says, capsize him. And there's this great scene where the attendants look and say, we can't kill him. He can't die on national TV. And Christoph turns to him and said, he was born on national TV. And oh so gosh. they go, okay. And it's Paul Giamatti, by the way, that has got his hand on the slider. Of course goes, I don't is. want to do it. And Christoph says, do it. And he swears at him and grabs the slider and slides it all the way up. And the storm just becomes overwhelming. And it capsizes Truman's boat. And he's almost drowned. And he claws his way back up onto the deck. And finally, Christoph says, forget it. He says, that's enough. And so Truman wins and the, the storm becomes calm and it's a, it's a calm sea all the way out to this horizon. And so Truman sails on to the horizon, which he bumps into. Because it's the wall of the dome. The prow of his sailboat pierces the horizon because it's a plaster wall. And then we have this fantastic scene where Truman finds a stairwell in the wall of the sky and he goes up to the top of the stairs he climbs and up to heaven. climbs up to the top of the stairs and there's a door in the wall because of course there's a door in the wall. It's a giant dome and it's full of water and the maintenance guys have to get in. Right. And he's standing at this door and he puts his hand on the door and Christoph speaks to him out of the heavens, literally. And he says, Truman, don't go out that door. And Truman is standing with his back to the heavens, with his back to God, the voice of God. And he never turns around again. He just stands there and speaks over his shoulder. And he says, who are you? And Christoph says, I'm the producer of a TV show that brings joy and inspiration to the whole world. And so we let that sink in for a minute, right? And then Truman goes, who am I? Christoph goes, 
you're the star. And then he tries to convince him not to go through the door. Why? Well, you know, he loses his, all the money on this great TV show, but also he says to him, he says, it's the same out there as it is in here. Same lies, same deceit, same pretense, same deception. But in here, you got nothing to worry about. You're perfectly safe. He says, I know you better than you know, than you know yourself. I know you're afraid to go through that door. I know everything to which Truman says, you never had a camera in my head. And, and the, at the, the final moment of the, the climactic moment, um, Christoph says, stay, don't go. And then he says, say something. And Truman's just trying to outweigh him, right? He goes, say something. And finally he drops this, this, it's very dramatic. And it's like God talking to his creature. It's like a father talking to his son. And finally Christoph sort of breaks down. And he goes, say something, GD, you're on national television. And Truman turns and says, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And he turns and walks through the door and basically shakes his fist in the face of this God who has been trying to manipulate and control him. Wow. That was about as thrilling hearing you retell it as it was watching it. I know. It. That was awesome. <laughs> so I think, I think that's the best that Hollywood has done recently anyway at putting the question of what is God like on the table for discussion. And, you know, obviously the, the, the answer that I think Truman Joe gives is that, that God is an opponent, right? An impersonal a, manipulator. Well, he's, yeah, he's a manipulator, right? He's, he's selfish. He's got a plan that involves his own gratification or his own purposes in which uh, man, Truman in this case, is a, is a cog or a pawn of some kind. And in order to manipulate and control him, he essentially deceives him. He presents to his senses what he wants to show and convinces the man that, that reality is what this God says it is. At one point, Christoph says, we accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. So God is the, you know, he's the guy that presents a, um, a world to a man. And then that man is led down whatever primrose path God has in mind. But at the bottom of it, there's the sense in which freedom is, is understood as freedom from the manipulation and control of this outside force. We all cheer when, in fact, the whole world cheers. Truman walks through the door and then you get these scenes of everybody who's watching the show around the world. And there's bars full of people that are hanging on every word and they start high-fiving and cheering and hugging each other. And, and they're so glad that Truman has finally broken free. It's the, best, it's the best finale they've ever seen. It's I'm the sure. best finale of all time, right? There's this guy in a bathtub and he's been watching this. It's, it's this middle-aged man, this hairy middle-aged man in a bathtub with um, candles all around it. He's having a little bubble bath. He goes, you can do it. You can do it. Come on. And he starts, he starts jumping up and down in the water when Truman finally goes through the door. So everybody's on his side, right? Everybody wants him to, to shake his fist at God and resist and rebel and defy this controlling outside force. Well, you keep saying at God, but everybody that's watching this knows that it's not God. It's just a man who's imposing himself Fair and enough. taking taking the role of God when he's not. He's just a man. Right. 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 That's that's absolutely true. But it is true. an obvious analogy, though. In the in the context of the story, Christoph is a TV director, and he's a basically more or less evil guy, mm -hmm. right? Megalomaniac. 
but at the, you know, at the level of analogy, here we are here. Truman stands for mankind, right? Stuck in this world. Is it really what it appears to be? How are you going to know? How do you know? That's, that's David Hume all the way, right? How can you tell what the evidence of your senses, if it's, if they're reliable or not? Mm -hmm. You can't. It's the it's the matrix, right? Did you take the blue pill or the red pill? Is what you're seeing a figment of your imagination or is it actual reality? And if it's a figment of your imagination, who set it up like that? And what 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 plan did he have in mind? And, and no matter what plan he had in mind, he's an opponent of some kind. So you think the author of this show is basically saying that God is an exploiter? Well, he's he's putting that idea on the table for consideration, certainly. Wow, that is. That is stirring, and it seems to me to be very, very much on point. And also, which is a shocker, given that I issued the same question to all of you, and you all answered it, it's, um, it is very constant with Megan's contemporary cultural example, yeah, which presents um, a, similar, a similar question in a slightly different light. Megan, what do you have for the, for the contemporary side of things? Well, I can't believe I'm going to do this on, on bibliophiles, but I'm going to turn our attention away from story for a minute and into music, actually. When I saw this question and, and Ian framed it to me as, um, what do contemporary voices say about God's nature? If there is a God, what is he like? My first thought was pop music, actually. Uh, it seems to be the most surfacey, uh, dare I say, mainstream answer <laughs> do, to a dare. lot of big <laughs> questions. Well, yeah, pop, pop music has, has the ear, quite literally, of, of the, the most people, at least in the United States, it's listened to broadly. And a lot of these big questions are at least used as analogies or metaphors for other things. And so I, I just thought up a couple that came immediately to mind, whether uh, intentionally they're talking about God, like Justin Bieber does in his, his new album. Um, he's got a song called Holy that I want to talk about for a minute. Um, he's really literally talking about his relationship with God and his new marriage with his wife. And the two of those things kind of conflate together. Um, but also you've got people like, like Taylor Swift, who wrote a song called False God. And then you have more shocking people like Ariana Grande, who uh, wrote a song called God is a Woman. The, the topic of who God is, is relevant uh, in our culture today. And so um, I wanted to present just a couple short snippets from each of those songs, Justin Bieber's Holy, Taylor Swift's False God, and then uh, I'm not going to even give you a snippet of Ariana Grande's God is a Woman. I will, I will tell you that you're better off not reading any of those lyrics. <laughs> but I will Sounds give you the great. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but, but my, my first answer to the question, from what I can see, contemporary uh, musicians consider God to be synonymous with one's lover. God is love and maybe not in a <laughs> maybe not in the Christian sense. God communicates with his people um, through relationships, which I heard us say at the beginning of this episode, and that was kind of cool, but I think they've got him confused with either the beloved or with themselves hmm. uh, in either hmm. case, which is kind of fascinating. And in both cases, romance is the kind of love you're talking about, right? Yeah, romance, romantic love, physical love is yep. the god of their universe and all of the trappings thereof. So beauty and youth, the most important qualities to be prized. And uh, sexuality is, is prized really highly. And God is romantic physical love in their minds. So just as a, 
kind of a, a way of jumping in, Justin Bieber writes in his chorus, uh, the way you hold me, referencing his wife, I believe, the way you hold me feels so holy. Bride's groom, I'm my father's child. I know when the son takes his first steps, the father's proud. If you make it to the water, he'll part the clouds. Formalize the union in communion he can trust. I know I ain't leaving you like I know he ain't leaving us. I know we believe in God, and I know God believes in us. So you've got this juxtaposition of marital imagery uh, and, and religious imagery, hmm. all coming down to uh, his, his conclusion. We believe in God, and God believes in us, and our, our marriage relationship validates his existence. Wow. He is the kind of God who loves love. And love is the highest good, so let's love some more. And so given that I'm experiencing it, he must exist. Right, exactly. And I think there is a lot of truth to be found in those lyrics and a lot of confusion all at the same time. If you scratch the surface of those lyrics, then God is actually friendly, at least. He's rooting for Beaver, right? And his approval. He's a believer. <laughs> God a is believer. a believer. God is a believer. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> well, oh, that's great. Yeah, well, God is rooting for Beaver, right? He's a believer. And his approval of, of Justin is mediated through a romantic relationship. Interesting. This is so interesting, Megan, because it reminds me of um, the theology of romantic love that Charles Williams um, spent a lot of, he spilled a lot of ink over it when he was talking about Dante and the Divine Comedy. The idea being that romantic love is a place, in particular, married romantic love is the place that the Lord actually deals incarnationally with individuals and that the love relationship functions as a kind of iron sharpening iron and draws individuals closer into Holy Communion with God himself. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it might be one of the reasons that that image comes up so frequently in music even. Taylor Swift is my next example, and her song, False God, is really self-aware, actually. She's using that image for that reason, to basically say the way that you and I relate to one another in our love is, is a picture of something holy and high. And it's because of things like forgiveness and uh, confession and closeness that comes about from wronging one another and giving a grace that is undeserved, right? The lyrics to her song are, are as follows. They all warned us about times like this. They say the road gets hard and you get lost when you're led by blind faith. But we might just get away with it. Religions in your lips, even if it is a false god, we'd still worship. We might just get away with it. The altar is my hips, even if it is a false god. We'd still worship this love. But we can patch it up good, make confessions, and we're begging for forgiveness. Got the wine for you. So, again, lots and lots of religious imagery, that reference of wine and communion, and we're, we're going too far, you know? It's this <laughs> image is... I'm scared to read this out loud. But at the same time, I think that if we, <laughs> if we acknowledge this is pop music, but there's something to be said at the heart of it, I think that they're noticing something true about the way that human relationships mirror a divine relationship. It's, it's a paltry shadow. Of course, we all believe that. Right. But it, there is something substantive in it. Well, and it seems like in the, in the example you just presented with Taylor Swift, you said she's self-aware. I think she calls it a false god for a reason and thinks of it as one, which is, uh, I can't tell if it's a step towards or away from Bieber. But um, I don't know. Interesting. 
Yeah, and I don't want to be on record as uh, taking any sides where that's concerned. I can tell you for sure, though, that my last example, I don't want to be associated with this. I got to tell you, because if you look at pop music right now and you're looking for songs that talk about the nature of God uh, in you know popular culture, you can't miss Ariana Grande's hit, uh, God is title. Woman. Maybe, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's in your face. And um, to put it modestly, which Ariana does not. <laughs> Nothing about Ariana Grande is modest in the song, and I do not recommend going to listen to it. This is not your next trip to the grocery store, easy listening with the family. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Oh, my gosh. Don't, don't play this for your kids. You. Please don't play this for your kids. No, but it does... Um, <laughs> It does use as its primary image the concept of worship. And she actually is not saying God is a woman as opposed to a man. Her argument in the song is because of physical love and the way that we can make one another feel, I will be a God to you and you will be a God to me. And that's as good as it gets. And I think that the answer then, as far as I can tell from pop culture is, what is God like? Well, God is like us. God is mm. like love, human love, mm. and that's mm. as good as it gets. Mm. Interesting. So Oof. while we can look for, you know, hope within that, that seems pretty, it seems like a shallow answer, at least from, from Ariana. Maybe a little deeper for Justin. <laughs> well, it sounds like she's, she's even saying there's no such thing as God, and so we'll be God for right. each other in the absence I think she is. Yeah. She's definitely venerating youth, beauty, and sex and saying this is as good as it gets. There's nothing more. Interesting. Humanism, pure and simple, and hedonism to boot. Yeah, I can hear my grandmother in my mind. This culture is going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket. She might be right. I don't know. (laughs) You know, even though I I hear everything that you're saying, I just can't get the idea of Paul talking about how uh, marriage is is an image of Christ in the church. So even the Apostle Paul uses romantic love and the marriage imagery to help us understand in some way the love of God mm. for us. So I think while you're so right. I'm pretty sure Paul didn't use the words that Ariana does. I'm pretty sure he didn't either. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm right. sure he wasn't um, <laughs> suggesting it as a substitute, more a metaphor, if you will. <laughs> right. But, but I, I am, it comes to mind, um, what's his name? Capons. Robert Capon's Between oh, Noon and Three, yeah. mm-hmm. the story in which, um, in his analogy, God is uh, like a successful adulterous lover who whisks us away and we get away with it. Um, so uh, perhaps a more controversial image no there, kidding. but he, he's, he's thinking along the same lines. Allow us to again recommend that you don't read that to your children, but do go read it for yourself, though. Mm. Because what a fantastic book. Yeah, That's a great connection, Emily. I haven't thought about the, that. The scandal of the gospel. So, okay, Emily, are you about to present us in your contemporary example with a salve to these two wounds? <laughs> or are you just going to twist the knife even farther? Hmm? Well, I think it's interesting that Megan critiques the uh, romantic obsession that God is ultimately physical romantic love. I was looking for examples of what we need or what um, the current culture recognizes that it needs or wants out of maybe they wouldn't call it God, but fulfillment of some kind. And I was watching recently with Megan 
a fabulous little BBC uh, comedy by Miranda Hart called Miranda. It's Miranda's show. And I we love her. So great. We do. Oh, <laughs> so she's funny. So great. If you like humor and dare I say the goodness of life, watch that show. <laughs> and it's dare exactly that. What she wants is a romantic relationship. Um, and so a man. I, I I don't want to contradict anything Megan said, but yeah, she does. And but the thing about Miranda that's so wonderful is that she is extremely tall and a little ungainly and awkward. <laughs> And she's a lot ungainly and awkward. She's a lot, yeah. We didn't. You got to set that up a little more strongly. And it's on purpose, right? She she creates this character for herself where she is just the. She becomes the worst version (laughs) of what every woman fears that they actually are. Uh. She she (laughs) takes on herself what every woman thinks of herself and projects it onto the screen and the show, and it's hilarious and so relatable. But she is in love throughout this whole show with Gary, the little chef next door. And I don't, she's not little. He is actually quite handsome. (laughs) He's a hunk, (laughs) as I've heard. He's littler than she is. Yeah, but he's littler than she is. (laughs) 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 It's Tom Ellis who has become recently a um, (laughs) total sex pot. Kind of a heartthrob. (laughs) He's a a heartthrob these days. But um, the great thing about Gary that I think is just so beautiful in the show is that Miranda loves him, but she doesn't love herself. Um, and she, she thinks of herself as ungainly and too tall and too awkward. And, and, and she is learning to be comfortable with that, but she is basically pretty sure that Gary will never love her. But the thing is throughout the whole show, it's, it's never a question. Gary is unfailingly in love with her and he doesn't think of her in any of the ways that she thinks of herself. Can't even see them. It's not even, uh, well, it's okay, but he just doesn't even see it. And he is absolutely, he absolutely adores her for most of the whole show. I mean, so much so that until the last two episodes in which they do have to finally reconcile with Gary as a human being, um, <laughs> he really isn't actually a man i would say in this show he no. becomes a symbol. Um, he becomes a symbol he doesn't really have the qualities of a human being <laughs> yeah that's interesting so how does this present what who what is god like well i think that i i would tend to agree that the romantic impulse is a indication of what the human heart desires and needs and to we, be seen and and adored anyway well yeah and we can misconstrue that as as uh, sexual love but uh, ultimately, it is we desire a lover uh, who who doesn't care about or not who sees past our, our flaws, our monstrosities, um, <laughs> and, to be known and loved, right? Yeah, who who's forgetful of that hmm. to the point um, of not even bringing it up and loves us anyway. Ah, beautifully said. Yeah, mm. that's great. That's really, I knew I loved Miranda. So good. So. I would let's go back to the classics and see what they have to say on the same topic. Those are three stunning answers from the contemporary world. Let's see. Should we go back to the top of the order or should we reverse it as we go along a little snake draft style? Hmm? Hmm? Yeah, let's do the second one. That sounds fun. I'm Emily, not done here Emily talk. Emily, why don't you, why don't you jump right into your classic <laughs> example? My classic example. Well, I mean, no disrespect to Miranda Hart by this comment. In fact, I'm I'm working merely with the metaphor that she created, the image that she created for herself. In because that let with, it be said, we love Miranda she Hart. She is 
wonderful and beautiful she's and a, powerful. She's sort of she an can Andrew do whatever she wants. Saint, <laughs> but taking her example of monstrosity of her as the monstrous woman, I was brought uh, Frankenstein was brought to mind, mm. um, and the the creation of Frankenstein's monster and who is monstrous and hideous and so much so that his creator can't look upon him. The problem being that the creator is a human being, unlike Gary. Mm -hmm. um, he can't he can't bear to see what he has made with his own hands. Um, and we see through the story of Frankenstein the tragedy of uh, of probably the failing of human human love, like Megan was talking about. Um, that that ultimately can't fulfill us. That we need someone who can love us better and more than a human mm. being can. And so since the Frankenstein's monster doesn't get it, it's essentially a tragic. It's the tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a story, not just about Victor Frankenstein, assuming that he's God and can create life, but Frankenstein's creature also suffers from a, a God who is ultimately insufficient. Like Truman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because at the end of the story, the creature goes off to the Arctic, right? And uh, it's never heard from again. Yeah. In a similar way that you had Truman climbing out of the set and saying, see ya, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Exactly. I, I in each of those though. cases, oh, sorry, we're going to say a difference? I saw a similarity. In each of those cases, the God figure is a human being. Right. right. And yeah. I think, yep, and that was what I was going to say, that I think Frankenstein a little more... In, um, explicitly knows that right. and is telling the story by way of contrast so that there's longing in the reader for a divine God. Well, and I guess right. that makes me want to ask the question of, of Truman, if that's the case also, and we all seem to say pretty universally that it isn't, that it's a, it's a battle cry of the individual against a harsh unfeeling God, but doesn't it in some ways do exactly the same move as Frankenstein by saying, Hey, look how insufficient a human God is. Yes, I think so. But I think the distinction that Emily was pointing to is that Victor Frankenstein uh, realizes the futility of his effort. The, the, he realizes his sin of pride and arrogance and ruse the day. Um, Christoph actually, I think with half of his reaction at the very end, by the way, the last scene of Truman show is great cut transmission they say, and the screen goes to static after 27 years or whatever it's been. Awesome. But, but half of his reaction, Christoph's reaction is, um, I'm foiled by this opponent who has successfully defied me. And half of his reaction is, man, that was a great finale. Right. So it's hard to know whether he's as, whether he is as, as repentant, uh, and mindful right. of his limitations as Victor Frankenstein is. Well, he isn't, but all of the people watching the show are. Oh, for sure. Right? And so mm -hmm. there's the hope when Tr Truman exits the set that he'll discover reality. Right. Which wasn't what, yeah. what he was actually experiencing on a daily basis. But don't but you think that maybe the point of that is that if there this show is saying if there was a God, this is what it, he would be like. Therefore, to enter into reality is to acknowledge that there is no man behind the curtain. Uh, yeah, I see that. There's something like that. I mean, it, it it's um it's one of those things where he's I think Peter Weir is throwing it out there for you and saying discuss rather than yeah, saying right. here's my here's my thesis. Right. So, yeah, right. I think you could go that direction with it for sure. Well, that's that's an that's unlike um, the next author that's going to be discussed from Megan, Oscar Wilde, who, if unless I miss my guess, Megan doesn't say discuss. He says, 
Look at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, pretty aggressive, I think. Uh, oh, what about man. your classic example? It's definitely, definitely he's saying, look at it. Um, I was listening to Emily and, and uh, that line, uh, Victor Frankenstein looks at what he's created and it's so monstrous that he can't look at it. And that is evidence that he is not a fit creator. He's not a fit um, for the place of being God in the life of his little creature. I immediately thought of the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. In this story, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of, of storyline in order to give you context for the conversation. But in this story, there's a beautiful young esthete, and his name is Dorian Gray, and he's got an artist friend. And together, mutually, they worship Dorian's beauty and his youth. He is the most beautiful, most talented, and, and best of his generation. And so together, they look at him and they say, isn't it so sad that you are going to age? And wouldn't it be great if we could preserve your perfection forever? If we could idolize you and put you on a parapet somewhere so that nothing ever touches you. And then you could live whoever you wanted. You could enjoy this life with all of its hedonistic, sensual pleasures, and your beauty would be untouched. And so that sounds like a great idea. And they decide to preserve it eternally for Dorian at the cost of his soul. No big deal. So he sells his soul and puts his soul into a, a, a work of art. He puts it into a painting and his artist friend traps his soul forever in this painting that they then hide in the attic. And Dorian goes on forever, uh, remaining a chiseled hunk who's just the picture of health and goodness, no matter what he does. So all of his actions demonstrate all of his hedonistic, sensual pleasures. And he's a terrible, terrible person. But it never shows. And so you would never know. He looks like all of the best of life. But meanwhile, in the attic, the truth of his soul state is, is reflected in this artwork, which is growing more hideous by the day. It's a reflection of his inner self. And uh, when Dorian finally comes to look at it at the end of the piece, it is uh, standing there as a record of the ages of sin that Dorian has been living. It's a cruel taskmaster that shows him all of his faults. And it's so horrifying that he dies in that moment, looking at the reality of himself. So in this, in this conversation, it feels to me like uh, what Oscar Wilde is arguing is that if we make ourselves our own God, if we make our own whatever element of ourselves, our, our goodness, our beauty, if we are our own gods, uh, in the end, we are going to despair because we are fit for neither place. Not for, for judging ourselves, not for worshiping ourselves. We are not fit. We are too small. And we need someone from the outside because we can't do anything but, uh, but condemn. Wow. So he seems to definitely be not espousing this, this reading of divinity as, uh, as um, beauty and self being the, the highest good, but warning against it. Interesting, too, that at the end, the... The beautiful self is overcome by the ugly self. It reminds me of Jekyll and Hyde. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, I, I like that comparison. From your negative self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, but Megan, make it sharper even. Um, the question is, what is God like? It, what do you think Wilde's answer to that is, confining it to, yeah. to Dorian Gray? Um, well, I think his answer would be something to the effect of what you worship becomes your God. So hmm. God is, is the object of your worship. So he's confined by, by you. You make God. And that artwork that is created by the artist in that, in that piece becomes God. 
to Dorian. So it's Dorian's inability to make a good one that causes God to be a terror? Or is it more to do with the nature of, of the universe and the true God standing outside of him that, that actually judges? Is the natural law judging him by, by showing his deeds on the painting? Or, is, or are those things of Dorian Gray's own creation, I guess is the way I'd put that. Yeah, Well, right. I'm not sure. I'd love to know what Oscar Wilde thought about that. Because <laughs> the, <too. laughs> the only reason the artwork decays after he's you know, sold his soul or whatever is because of the choices that he makes thereafter. So uh-huh. in that way, he is creating the, the system. He's creating yeah, this God mean. who will judge him. I don't know. I'm not sure what Oscar Wilde would say. It seems that all the examples are saying that if there is a God, it will not be sufficient for him to be anthropomorphic. That we right. can't. Yeah. He can't be like us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. It seems to synthesize all of these answers, with maybe the exception of this last one, actually. I don't know, because the classic that I was going to talk about very briefly here at the end is Herman Melville's uh, 19th century classic, 1851, Moby Dick. You guys mentioned when I was talking about Truman getting on his sailboat and sailing off and having uh, Christoph cue the wind, that it sounds a lot like Moby Dick. And I think that there are similarities that uh, I would not be surprised to hear that Peter Weir was aware of and was doing some things on purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, there the the um, the idea of God as an opponent first and foremost that the protagonist of the story is pitted in battle against is really kind of the main idea of of Moby Dick for sure. But there's two things about about God in Moby Dick that I think are important besides the fact that he is that he's an opponent that Ahab, the crazy captain of the Pequod, is uh, committed to to killing, right? Um, the second thing is that he's inscrutable. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't get a good glimpse of him. And these two things work um, in tandem to drive Ahab crazy and help Melville, you know, ruminate on God's nature. But, I, but before I, I explained those, I, I wanted to note that both of those are present in the Truman Show as well. Right. First of all, that God's an opponent because he wants to prevent Truman from escaping, but also that he, they never gets a good look at him, that he's, he's invisible. And even at the, in the last climactic scene where he's talking to him, he's, he's standing with his back turned and he's looking out through the door at, at the, the things of man and um, never looks God in the face. But, um, but he doesn't do it as dramatically as Ahab. Because Nobody's never as dramatic been, as Ahab. There has never <laughs> been a statement of God's inscrutability that tops Moby Dick, for sure. So there's this great scene in um, chapter 36 of Moby Dick, by which I mean right at the beginning. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Where Ahab is trying to, to, to whip his crew uh, up of whalers up into a frenzy by offering them a giant gold coin, an ounce of gold, uh, if they're the one, the ones who cite Moby Dick and uh, bring the Pequod to um, into battle and kill him, right? So there's there's this reward, and he's using this reward uh, to to whip the crew up into a mad frenzy, and they're all only half civilized anyway, so they're going for it. Death to Moby Dick! <laughs> Death to Moby Let's Dick! Go! Ah! <laughs> and, 
Starbuck, who is the sort of the voice of, of reason and, and more than that, the voice of traditional Christianity, yeah, orthodoxy. And even Puritanism, right? It's going, yeah. you guys are nuts. And he says, vengeance. Oh, by the way, during this scene, it comes out that Moby Dick has bitten off Ahab's leg. And that's one of the reasons he's so mad at it. It's right? a personal so vendetta. <laughs> right, it's vengeance, right? So Starbuck says, vengeance on a dumb brute that simply smote thee from blindest intellect madness. To be enraged with a dumb thing, Captain Ahab, seems blasphemous. And Ahab responds with this otherworldly, all-time great statement of God's inscrutability. He says, this is Ahab speaking, Hark ye yet again, a little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, the living act, the undoubted deed... There some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near to me. So he says, basically, God's behind it. And the features of the world around us are the features of God's face, but he's hiding in the circumstances. He's hiding in the details. He's hiding in the physical representations. And if, and he's against you, he bites your leg off. And he says that inscrutable thing, the, uh, he says, there's a malice in God that presents itself in the whale, right? And he says that inscrutable thing, that malice is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal. I will wreak that hate upon him. So here's, here's Truman. It turned up to 11, right? Truman says sort of, sort of whiny. You never had a camera in my head. And, and Ahab says, I will wreak my hate upon your inscrutable malice. With this harpoon. Yes. Which I'm going to use to do it. <laughs> right. And so, so God's an opponent, right? But then, but then Ahab says he's inscrutable. He's poking through the, the, the details of the world, like a, like sticking your head, uh, you know, in a mask. But then we get these long chapters in Moby Dick where it's nothing but the details of 19th century whaling, right? If anybody's right. ever said, don't read Moby Dick, it's boring. What they mean is, there are two dozen chapters of how to kill a whale from a 19th century whaling vessel. And, and then what to do with this it. stuff. Right. Yeah. And there's biological treatises on the, the morphology of whales and the different species of whales and, and, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And some people actually, when they're assigning that book, teachers, they cut those chapters out and say, just read the plot stuff. Kids we will leave the whaling chapters for when you're grown or whatever, but they provide such a fabulous example of this very thing that Ahab is talking about, right? All of the details of the physical world are the, are the features of his face, but you still can't see him. And so he gives us chapter after chapter of the inner workings of a whale, all of his body parts inside as if to show just how detailed the pasteboard mask really is. It's basically hmm. a theodicy through science. Yes. Wow. God is in the whale in the intricacy of his construction and also in the fact that you can't see him there. No matter how you look, you can cut him open and cut him into a million pieces and there's not God except his malice is in everything. And, and Melvin makes the point so well that by the time you're done, if those whaling chapters really land on you, you're as mad as Ahab. Right. 
And you think this, this God who's behind all these things shows himself and then won't show himself. And I think he's probably going to bite my leg off. Yeah. Yeah. You're also to inject just a little bit of humor, um, trying desperately to see meaning in 12 plus chapters of cetology and it's getting impossible and, and you're really confused. And so you want to wreak your malice on the author, <laughs> yeah. on the author of these 24 totally. chapters of wailing. If you've been assigned your it in harpoon. school, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Wow, man, that is really, that's really stirring. So, so is there, is there, I guess the question is, is there a difference really between how we're answering this question now and how we once did, how the, how the classics answer the question, or are they all really orbiting the same, the same answer? Well, from the, the perspective of Moby Dick versus the Truman Show, the, the essential conflict between Ahab and the whale happens in a whole universe of, of Christian symbols and Christian stories and Christian understandings of, of man and God. Right. And, and Ahab, though he's the protagonist of the story, is also an anti-hero. And readers are taught to, to pity Ahab and to, to, to be warned against his impious rage. And so he, he's wrong. Well, it's actually, God. it's a contemplation of the nature of suffering, yeah. ultimately. Not just who is God, but why does God allow right. suffering? But Ahab is clearly wrong about God. And so that's, that's different, I think, than the 20th century uh, example that I use, where that is an open question. Although he gets it, well, he's closer to the truth than, um, than the present world, because at least he acknowledges God that's what behind I meant. the pasteboard mask. Right? That's what I meant. Yeah. I meant that okay. very thing, yes. Right. I'm trying to think of, of your question, Ian, in relation to my two examples. And I think that the modern day answer and Oscar Wilde's answer are in direct competition, at least from, from my perspective. The, the modern's answer seems to be, well, God is like us. Modern love, God, God is love like this. But the mm -hmm. classics like Wilde seem to be saying, even in like pseudo horrific terms, God must be other. It's so important that he transcend humanity because every human copy becomes a tyrant. Every human copy will decay well, and yeah. become a tyrant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a big disconnect there. Well, and man damns himself in the end in, in right. Dorian Gray, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Seems like Justin... The, just in our last example from our last episode, um, we talked a little bit about how the, the cultural moments require different articulations of the truth. And I can see the same dynamics at play here. And I think the, the current moment is a bit more confused and they're willing to affirm the goodness of their own love more so than that, that it's possible for that to fill the hole that the need the the hole isn't quite as clear in our modern examples i think wow you guys that was really fun to listen to <laughs> thank you for bringing those examples That's well fun. uh it, it's just a joy to be discussing these things we'll be back again uh next week for another universal question uh with another round of center for Lit dignitaries preparing um, thank you, listeners, as always, for joining us. And thank you for, for saying such intelligent things. And until next time, my friends, happy reading. Happy, happy reading. reading. Happy reading. Thanks for joining us. Our hope is that as we discuss these questions, we offer a glimpse of how far-reaching they truly are and how much fruit they've yielded as authors return to them again and again. Reading carefully, we lit lovers can join their conversation and bear fruit of our own by adding our voices. 
If you're interested in learning more and in bringing some extra life to book discussions in your own classroom and homeschool, you can visit our website and check out our DVD seminar, Teaching the Classics, which presents the principles of Socratic discussion for literature in a way that is fun and easy to implement. In the meantime, thank you for participating in our conversation. We look forward to joining you again next week as we tackle the next great question, what manner of creature is man? Until then, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>